Well, um, we've we got to open up uh, an interesting part of this sermon series this morning together and um, take a look at some things. I've really appreciated uh, Brendan's initiative here of how do we see God? And this morning what we want to look at is we want to see how do the Pharisees see God and what, what are the lessons for us in that? I want us to think about um, how we form pictures, especially of people, because it correlates to how we make pictures of God. How many of you experienced when, um, you know, you're about to meet somebody and someone has met them before and they, they give you the kind of the, the upshot of this is what this person's like and then you meet them and you go, well, where'd they get that from? Has that happened to you? Where, where someone gives you one picture of the person and then you meet them and you go like, wow, is this the same person? I was thinking about this and uh, probably the cleanest picture I have of that is my fourth grade teacher. Her name was Mrs. Sauer. And honestly, you know, God rest her soul, but uh, she looked a little sour. She looked like someone baptized her in lemon juice. She kind of, and, and, the, and, the, and the rumor, you know, that, you know how kids talk in elementary school, they're like, oh, who do you have and who do you have? And, you know, so all of us like, I've got Mrs. Sauer. Oh, no, you're doomed. And, and then I met Mrs. Sauer. And I remember, you know, I had, I'd been persecuted. I should be left-handed. But my first uh, grades going through elementary school, the teachers literally would stand on my left shoulder and they'd take the pen out of my left hand and put it in my right hand and just kept doing it. Mrs. Sauer didn't worry about any of that. And I kept waiting for the Wicked Witch of the West to show up. And she wasn't there. In fact, of all the teachers that I've had in elementary school, junior high, high school, undergrad, graduate schools, she is one of two teachers that really left a lasting impact of how loving and caring and how much a teacher can impact your life. And yet somehow she got this weird reputation. And it, it, it can happen so strangely. But the struggle that we have as we move through life at the speed of, you know, a careening train or something like that, is we're meeting people in situations that we haven't met before or haven't encountered. And so we feel like we have to somehow put it in a bucket. Where do I put this experience? Or where do I put this person? What, what bucket do they fit in? And so when it comes to people, there's two factors in how we bucket them. What we see before us in the person, and then what we know about what we see on the outside of the person. And we bucket. And studies show that first impressions are formed uh, within seven seconds. So there's not much time that transpires. So I thought, well, this morning what we'll do is a little exercise, and I'll flash some pictures, and we'll talk about which bucket the person fits in. Okay, are you ready? Rub your temples. Deep breath. Here we go. Bucket number one. Who's this? Hippie. How many say hippie? Yep. What kind of car does the hippie drive? Volkswagen van, baby. What's on the back window? <laughs> right. What word does he, or what does he say a lot? Dude. Groovy. Right. There's the hippie guy. Okay. What about this guy? Ooh. 
Dads, what would you do if this guy came to pick up your daughters? Lock the door. door. Pray. Call in the National Guard. I mean, look at his biceps. That dude, he's scary. He's a scary dude. What do you think? If If he walked in, like, let's talk elevator. You're in the elevator and the door opens and this, this guy's there and he's getting in the elevator. What do you do? Ah! <laughs> yeah! He's a scary dude. So contrast that though, because he looks scary, doesn't it? He just looks scary. What about this guy? He, he's, he's creepier, isn't he? Why is that? You know, he's not as big and, you know, walking around like this, but he, He was the first face that came up when I Googled creepy. <laughs> he just naturally fits in the creepy bucket. All right. How about this? What bucket does he go in? <laughs> yeah, we love to pick on the used car guys, don't we? Yeah. We kind of think, well, I, I, know, what, I know what to do there. How about, how about this gal? Whoa. <laughs> she goes in the whoa bucket. And, you know, I, I looked at goth pictures, and she was kind of the middle-of-the-road goth. But, you know, you, sometimes you see a person like that. And, I, you know, when I was uh, planting the church in New Brighton, I remember I, I became kind of a, at least a, a safe person to a group of goths. And I don't even know what high school they went to, but I ran into them at Caribou Coffee, and we start conversations. You know, it was really interesting to kind of find out what was under the hood of some of these students, you know, but you look at the outside and the first thing you do is go, whoa, okay. All right. How about this guy? Someone please. What was that? (laughs) Shan goes, ooh, good looking. Shan's kind of in the good looking bucket. How about this guy? Who's he? Pharisee. And what are they all about? Condemnation. Condemnation. What else? Rules. What? Legalism. What else? Money. Money? <laughs> yeah. No, they are. Yeah. You know, we, we, we hear about these guys, and, you know, even in Sunday school, the felt boards, you know, when you're putting up the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, ooh, you know, bad guys. And we really want to ask some questions. Because we're talking about how we form pictures of God. And how can we get a more accurate picture of God? So we really want to look at their story. And we want to ask, who are these guys? And why are they like that? Right? That's the first question we want to ask. And then we want to say, how did they see God? Maybe it's time for corrective lenses. I was telling first service that, you know, I had this friend in college. And... um, he was famous for, like, he didn't want to sit in the front row, so he'd sit in the middle of the row, and, and he'd just be squinting at the board. It looked painful. He'd just be squinting. Finally, a professor said, you know, hey, James, maybe you should go get some glasses or go get your eyes checked. So he did, and he, he comes back, and he's got glasses, and he comes into the cafeteria, and we're sitting around eating, and he goes, guys, have you seen leaves? And we're like, what do you mean Leaves. He goes, like, there's leaves on trees. We're like, what? We've been letting you drive the car when you can't see leaves? 
Yeah, so sometimes you have to really, you know, say, how are we seeing? Maybe I need corrective lenses because we want to learn something this morning because we don't want to fall into the same kind of conundrum that the Pharisees had fallen into. Okay, so how many of you, when you were a kid, liked report cards? Liked report cards. Oh, I dreaded it. You know, my sisters, my two older sisters, um, report card time, can't wait to see marks. And the thing about report cards is, you know, it's, it's bad enough that my, my parents are going to see my bad grades, but the comments from the teachers were tough, right? Can I get an amen to that? I, maybe, you, maybe you didn't sit on the same side of the classroom as me, but I can remember some of the comments and I, I actually I emailed my mom and I said, Mom, can you remember any of those comments? She goes, no, I tried to forget them. <laughs> Fair enough, Mom. But like teachers would say, he can't sit still. He's disruptive. He's not working up to his potential. Right? Whatever that is. Ouch. But when you open up the report cards, kind of the final report cards from Jesus with these Pharisees, open your Bible though. Matthew 23. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but boy, if you want to read a bad report card, read the whole chapter. It's got seven woes in it. I didn't have any woes in my report cards, thankfully. But, I mean, we're just going to kind of sample some things out of Matthew 23 that gives you perspective because Jesus is dishing out some grades here. Starting in verse 1, it says, Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, so he's going public with the report card, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Comment number one on the report card. That doesn't sound so good, does it? You don't practice what you preach. What do you call that? A hypocrite, Right? says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. How about this report card comment? Verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. Ow! He goes on with the woes and he starts dishing out these kinds of comments. They're hypocrites. They're blind guides. They're blind fools. They're children of hell. I know my mom didn't get that on the report card. This kid's a children of hell. Whitewashed tombs. I mean, it, it just sounds so bad, doesn't it? I mean, read it tonight. It's, it's unsettling about who, who are these guys and, and where did they come from and what in the world is happening to them? So I began to revisit some of my seminary notes and thinking about biblical history and where did the Pharisees start? And what, what's the background on these guys? I kind of felt like I was like re-looking at those goth kids thinking, what, what's underneath all this? And I look at the Pharisees. And I, I don't think they got up in the morning and they looked at one another and said, you know, Larry, I think today I'm just going to be an ornery old hypocrite. Stand on the corner, make judgments, pick on people, and just be an ornery coot. Yeah, me too, you know, and they walk. I, do you think they did that? So as I dug, here's, here's what comes up. And, and the problem with Jewish history is the Jews were 
taken seeds so many times that their historical documents are really uh, sporadic and their whole culture got uh, thrown up in the air and it's a mess to figure out what, what happened here. Because then you read about it, don't you? It's like the prophets tell the people you should listen to God. People harden their hearts. What happens? Israel goes, right? Someone comes in. It gets flipped around. And as best historians can guess, somewhere between 555 B.C., the Assyrian captivity, where we lost 10 tribes, by the way, or the Babylonian captivity in Exodus in 422 B.C., there was a group of people that finally had had enough. And they, they were people that were lay people. They were the everyday Joes and Janes. And at that time, they were tired of these crooked priests. They were tired of a corrupt religious system. And they were tired of being taken seeds captive by these foreign countries. It was a disgrace to them. And so out of this grew a people called the Pharisees. They declared themselves separate for the Lord. We will not allow this to happen anymore. You know, when bad stuff happens to you, do you go back to the same place where the bad stuff happened to you? If you had a bad experience at a restaurant, can you not wait to go back and revisit the restaurant? You just go, no, I'm not going there, right? Well, in a much bigger way, this people, the Pharisees, said, we cannot allow this to happen again. I mean, imagine it. You go home, your house may be burned down, exploded. At least there's soldiers gathered around it. You think you're going to go in because it's your house? It's not your house anymore. It belongs to the Babylonians. You're out. You have an experience like that. You don't want to go back there, do you? And so the Pharisees determined that we are not going to do this. And you see the emergence. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the kind of the two big groups. We're talking about these guys. Now, I want you to realize something. That the Pharisees really are our are, are theological bloodline for many things. As you look at the Sadducees, they were the upper class people. They were negotiating. If you've seen the movie Braveheart, they're kind of like the landowners. And so they're just going to cut a deal with the king of England. And all you peasants, tough luck. So the people loved the Pharisees. They were middle class. They were the salt of the earth people. And look at this. They maintain there is a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, no, there's not. We, we believe in an afterlife, said the Pharisees. We don't, said the Sadducees. They rejected the corrupt Jewish leaders. These guys supported them. In fact, they were tied to them. And so the Pharisees were trying to maintain some kind of social order. And they're trying to maintain a cohesiveness because, remember, their picture is God doesn't mess around. You mess with God, He messes with you. And their whole foundation of their experience was of this God that just waits for you to misbehave, and you misbehave, I'm sending another nasty nation, and it's going to be trouble. And so what they did was they believed in the Torah, the law, 
But the Sadducees said, no, it's Torah alone. But they said, we've got to find some way of helping these people understand what does it mean to obey God. And so it's not enough to tell you, you should keep the Sabbath holy. Because we don't want you to miss something. And we don't want angry God to come back into the house and give it to us. So what we're going to do is we're going to tell you exactly how you need to keep the Sabbath holy. Because we don't want you to miss anything. And so they created a whole litany of writing called the Mishnah, where the, uh, the Pharisees got together and they began to say, well, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Can you carry water? No. Or some rabbi would say, well, no, you could carry water here, but not here. Well, what, can we feed our livestock? No, that's work. You don't do that on the Sabbath. You have to do it here and here. And remember now, the Pharisees are highly suspect. They don't know who to trust in their country. But they know they don't want to go through captivity again. So they're watching on the outside. Do you keep the Sabbath like we tell you to? Because we want to know if you are a secret spy. This is why they kept pestering Jesus with questions. Wait, you don't wash your hands like us. Wait, you, don't, you let your guys harvest wheat. On the Sabbath. Wait. And they, they just... But their, their bottom line is what they're so concerned about is this angry God coming back and getting them. Now we have to think ourselves for a moment. When we go through a hard situation, when something doesn't work out the way we thought, don't we distance ourselves? I'm not going to try that again. I'm not going to risk that again. And doesn't it also have a correlating part of the lens we see God? It's like, God, where were you in that hard time? I'm not so sure you do see everything. I'm not so sure you're always there. And we articulate it, but then we quickly go, ooh, that's naughty. I'm not going to do that, you know. But in our hearts... We move it a little bit away. And the problem is that it's like rocket trajectory. Where you take off is very important because what happened was their picture of God should have been a balanced picture. But they take off on this angry dad picture. And you know where you start down here in the bottom, is a, it's a narrow gap. But as you go out, it gets wider and wider and wider. And pretty soon, the only thing the Pharisees could think about with God was God is mad and he's coming. And you better shape up. And they live with that intensity and that image. And they miss so much because look what Moses says in the Revelation. It would have been right in their book. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Is he an angry God? No. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents 
to the third and fourth generation. This is the revelation Moses saw as the Lord passed by in his glory, and he was hidden in the cleft of the rock. But the thing with the Pharisees out of this bad experience, and this is why we have to watch, because there's no way, people, there's no way that we don't allow our experience to inform our picture of God. So we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful because when we have bad experiences, it could quickly slide into we have a bad God. So this is what their red-letter Bible looked like. Real small print here, but boy, it's bolded and red. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Be honest with me. When you slip and fall, when you say something you shouldn't, when you look at something you shouldn't, when you eat the 43rd Oreo cookie that you shouldn't. Don't you sometimes feel like that, though? God's going to get me. God's going to get me for that. I'm a naughty boy. So we really want to look at what can we learn because there's, there's something that's really important, because we don't want to reproduce these mistakes. The first thing that we need to know is that although we can trace back in history and guess, the Pharisees started about here. Really, the first Pharisees started in the garden. As soon as Adam and Eve took that tree called the knowledge of good and evil, a death happened, and it stained all of us. You see, there is something about the human quest towards spirituality, towards religion, that makes us want to be the ones in charge. We know what's true. We know what's right. And we find ourselves eating from that tree and making judgments about what's right or wrong, in and out, good or bad. Brennan touched on this last Sunday when he was talking about some of the pastor wars. I mean, it breaks my heart sometimes to watch some of these arguments happen, and they, be, they become personal vendettas. They be, you're just shooting. It's, it's not friendly fire, but it is fire. And it flows from our beginnings. And if we're not eating from the tree of life, we can easily fall into a place, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think for most of us, when the Pharisee comes out, it comes out hardest on me. Because I, I know me. I know what I think sometimes. I know what I do sometimes. And I have to be honest. You know, I think, ooh, I'm a pastor. This should be better. I should do be- I should say better. I should look better. I should know better. And the picture that I have in that moment is the angry God running after me with a big spanking stick. And it flows out of the Genesis complex. What did they do when they got busted? It would have been so different if the, the Satan would have said, hey, you know what? God's holding out on you. He said, you can't eat of any of these trees. It would have been so different if it hadn't even said, hold the phone. Because we know our Father, He's always catching up to us, walks around. Hold the phone. We'll go get Him. We'll ask Him. What a difference that would have been, huh? 
hey, God, this, this kind of creepy-looking snake, like the guy in the picture, he's got a deal for us. What do you say? Big change, right? Big change. So here's what we need to remember. And here's some lessons, little nuggets that you can, I hope, put in the mental pocket and think about today. Some things that we could learn from the Pharisees. Number one, it's God who makes. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Faithful is he who calls, and he will also bring it to pass. When Jesus calls the disciples, he says, Come follow me, and I will make. And the Pharisees were so concerned about holding the right line that they were determined with their own strength, I'm going to do this. And I know, when I, when I, I, I just, I had a rough week, because Brendan's right. You know, when we preach sermons, God works in us some things, so we got something to say. Ugh, I need like Pharisee recovery group. Twelve steps out of being a Pharisee. I just saw myself in so many places being Pharisee. But one of the worst is, when I hear God, I, and I don't mean to do this, I hear God, Mark, this is what I want you to do, and I kind of do this. I'll go do it. And I start doing it on my own strength. I throw the yoke off, and I'm not consciously thinking of doing that. I just jump right in and start doing it out of my own strength. You think that's a good idea? No, it's not good. I have to remember, it is God who makes. Now, listen to this. How do you hear this verse? You shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you hear that as a threat or an invitation? For years, I heard that as a threat. You better be holy, Spencer, because I'm holy. But now I read it as an invitation. There's hope for Spencer because God is holy. He's working in me. He's changing me from the inside out. It's God who makes. We need to remember it's God who makes and not slide off like the Pharisees slid off because of the wrong picture of God. But two, a reaction to the wrong doesn't mean you've got it right. The Pharisees reacted to the wrongs. They reacted. They said, we don't, we don't want to go back there, so we don't want wrong things to happen. And they assumed that their reaction was right. When even the Old Testament prophet Micah says this, here's what God wants. What is good? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So when we notice the wrongs, resist the pharisaical slide and say, Jesus, what are you doing here that could bring right? What can you bring here, Lord? And follow Jesus in that. The Pharisees had a fatal error when they moved from being truth seekers to thinking that they were the truth keepers, the holders of truth. This is what's happening when these pastors are having these wars. The reality is, people, we are always truth-seeking, because truth is a person, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a person, 
It's a relationship. It's what Brennan was saying last Sunday. It's about relationship. And that is so important because the revelation goes on and on. It's why Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. He says, listen, I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of him so that you would know the hope that he's called you and that you would realize the love that he has for you. We need to keep seeking the truth. Beware when we feel like we're the holders of truth. And lastly and very importantly, God has designed us to be human beings, not doings. Our being, to abide in Him, abide in me, even as I abide in you. The Lord says in His prayer, He says, Father, I want you to make them one, even as you and I are one. Be with Him. And from being with Him, then flows life, flows godliness, flows sanctification, flows revelation, flows a a clearer picture. We're so busy sometimes focusing on what we need to do. I mean, Christian bookstores are packed with do, 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 do. There's very little about being, sitting with Him, embracing His love. And so what God and His Spirit are always about is, is coming to us to bring revelation of be with me. Abide in me. The bottom line is, is people, when you mess up, do you run to him or from him? I would say, honestly, I bet about 500 on that. And then eventually I get so tired from running from God, I fall down exhausted. And you know what I find? I find this. It's my closing story. If your picture of God is somehow skewed like the Pharisees from a bad experience, it's informed from a hardship, it's informed from pain that you don't want to experience again, that's understandable, but God wants to give you corrective lenses so you see Him as He really is. Back when I was in Eden Prairie, there was a a guy that we'd finally kind of convinced to come to one of our meetings, and we would have these worship gatherings. And this guy was a professed atheist. He says, this God stuff is nonsense. And we said, you know what? If it's nonsense, then just come for an hour and a half of nonsense, and then we'll go get pizza afterwards. So he shows up. And in this particular night, as God would have it, it, there just was a, a profound sense of God's presence filling the room. And so... We walked in, and, and the church in Eden Prairie is a little bit like ours. There's a big foyer out there, and the sanctuary is in here. And so we start making our way to the sanctuary, and he stops right at the door, and he says, I think I'll stay here. We said, well, don't you want to come in? He goes, nah, I'll stay here. What we found out later was he bumped into the presence of God. And then he stood there by the door, and worship was happening, and he got increasingly uncomfortable. He told us later that I felt like this shadow was coming on me and I was in trouble. He had a picture of an angry God. So he went around to where there was this sitting room and he sat there. And at first he felt immediate relief, but then pretty soon, ah, the presence came after him and he felt crowded. So then he went into the bathroom. Surely this presence won't come in the bathroom. So he went into the bathroom. And temporary relief And the presence followed him. So he was desperate. He said, I'm going into the stall. 
Surely this presence won't follow me in the stall. There was no relief when he got in the stall. He said, literally, the presence came on me with like a crushing force. And I was pressed back, back, back into the corner of the stall when I slid down and I thought my peril was sealed. When all of a sudden, I literally felt like two giant arms embraced me and drew me in and hugged me with a warmth and love I knew could only be God's. So watch out in the bathroom, people. (laughs) Because he wants to come to us in a way where his love undeniably embraces us. We think he's coming with the back of his hand when he's coming with the open of his hand to say, I have your names written on the palms of my hands. How could I ever separate myself from you? Let's pray. Lord, we're about to do offering. And it's way more. What you say is you want living sacrifices. That kind of freaks us out a little bit. But what you really are saying, you want us to run to you, offer ourselves to you, freely trust you. God, would you help us? If we have pictures that are misinformed and are cracked and wrong, would you please focus them and center them Would you take this, God, and do that? And Lord, as you do that, Lord, we we just give with a confidence that you give. We love with a confidence that you love. And we move with a confidence that you move with us. In Jesus' name, amen.